On this week's Behind the Idea, we're changing it up. Mike talks about his long PSQ trade and the technical approach he takes. He admits that it can feel a little uncomfortable. I, I'm going to sound like a weird technical analysis, but if I get confirmation of it, if it rallies back up and then re-enters, or there's some sort of additional signal that this is sort of more of a downtrend, then I'll get on board. And even after talking with Mike and listening to this podcast several times, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, as discussed on the pod. What I find compelling about technical analysis is not much, but what I do find compelling is the idea that it's reflective of market behavior and human behavior has patterns. And so if we can codify it in some way, there is something out there that people are responding to. How do momentum strategies work? And what's the risk to putting on a short-term trade when you are a long-term investor? We discuss on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to a very special ETF trading episode of Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today we're trying something a little different. We are going to walk through my position in PSQ, the ProShares Short QQQ ETF. That means I'm talking my own book here. Uh Uh-oh. Our goal is to be as frank and honest about the pitfalls of trying to time the market as we can and also explore the weird psychology of having a trade on that you may exit in the very near term. We'll talk about a little bit about how PSQ does and doesn't fit my overall investment strategy, the idea behind going long PSQ to the extent that I had one, and uh, how things have played out so far. Before we go forward, especially on this podcast. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors from around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. I am long PSQ. Definitely nothing on this podcast should ever be taken as investment advice of any sort, especially when it's me, Mike Taylor, describing my investment strategy and analysis. This is just For informational purposes, only do your own due diligence. I really mean it. Don't do it. Don't take it. Don't take it and run with it. Do your own homework. Okay, with that, let's get going. So just to start off, I want to give a quick background on what PSQ is and talk a little bit about how I consider it as a kind of risk management or trading instrument, what kind of investment vehicle it is, some of its strengths and weaknesses. And then we'll get later on into kind of the reasoning behind my long position in the ETF. So do a quick quoting of ProShares. ProShares short QQQ seeks daily investment of results before fees and expenses that correspond to the inverse minus 1x of the daily performance of the NASDAQ 100 index. Again, quoting, this short pro shares ETF 
seeks a return that is minus one X, the return of the underlying benchmark target for a single day. And they bold that and put it in italics as measured from one asset valuation calculation to the next. Due to the compounding of daily returns, ProShares returns over periods other than one day will likely differ in amount and possibly direction from the target return for the same period, etc. Investors should monitor their holdings as frequently as daily. For more on risks, please read the prospectus. So <laughs> I really, the front page of the PSQ website brings up this really important point about the vehicle. And it's one that a lot of investment professionals tend to harp on when they're talking about ETFs and related vehicles. And that's this concept that the vehicle may not reflect the performance of the underlying target, except over the time frame that it's stated. So PSQ is aiming for the inverse of one-day returns of basically the NASDAQ 100 index. But because returns compound over time, the longer you hold it, the more different your returns from PSQ might be from a short position in the NASDAQ 100. Let me interrupt to ask, how does the... What is PSQ actually doing? What do, by holding it are you you just said it's not holding a short position. So what is it? Is it holding individual short positions in each of the components or how would you describe this? So I don't know fully the underlying mechanics of the way that it works, although I did look at the prospectus and it seemed to derive its exposure primarily through trading in derivatives. And so my guess would be that it holds futures positions in NASDAQ 100 futures or swaps. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. The, I'm, I, I guess the mere question exposes my sort of naivete around ETFs in general because and so that's where you know so that I'm interested in that I'm also interested in and we can get more into the fact that this is an inverse ETF which has certain implications for I assume how it will trade over the long haul yeah so 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 what what brought you to PSQ why did you decide given that structure to take a position in PSQ. Why PSQ? I honestly Googled short NASDAQ ETF, and we'll talk about my thought process about sort of shorting the NASDAQ a little bit later. But, you know, I didn't shop around for different short ETFs. My basic theory is that they kind of all work the same way. They get derivative exposure to an underlying index. They charge you a fairly substantial fee to enter into this. And they're designed for kind of shorter term trading, people who are kind of want to take speculative positions in markets, people who want to do some kind of discretionary hedging or risk management. And it's just what's available via my broker. And so I just sort of took a shot at it. 
to the second, to the kind of fundamental question of why would I do this? Why would I purchase a security that has short exposure to the NASDAQ 100? The simple answer is that the rally in tech has gone on for a really long time. And it's just kind of been frustrating to watch the FANG hype, the tech hype, a lot of companies that seem to have sort of poor, questionable fundamentals continuing to go up. We've been in a period of extremely low volatility for a long time. And the QQQ had been above its 200-day moving average for years until October, which is when I put on the trade. So this is a momentum trade. I guess that's one way of looking at it from the fundamental perspective. So I'm curious, maybe before getting into questions around how you th- think about the position and just because I think it is it is an interesting experiment. The one thing that's worth noting for our listeners is working at Seeking Alpha, we have a compliance policy around our investing. We're allowed to invest in stocks. Obviously, we've disclosed positions in the past, but the rules are, there are some obvious ones like no abusing of our position and no front running or anything else related to publication of articles. But we also have a minimum holding period of three of 90 days. I know we can ask for waivers in extenuating circumstances, but generally the standard policy is a 90 day holding period. And so I bring that up because before getting into why you chose to enter when you did, and then sort of the dynamics when you're kind of in that 90 day period where you've got to hold on. I'm curious if it crossed your mind to choose a short position in and of itself rather than like, how do you think we talk a lot about diversification, whether or not it's worth taking on company specific risk? How do you think about that in this case, in terms of you, I understand why PSQ versus other ETFs, but why ETFs at all, instead of trying to find a position with an opportunity? Good question. So a couple of reasons for that. One is that my brokerage account is not for my discretionary investments is not overly large. And I'm actually, I don't have margin on my brokerage account. I'm not very familiar with the mechanics of short selling in general, and I've never shorted an individual stock. So there's discomfort around that. The second thing is that since this was sort of a momentum strategy play, I've done some work on the long-term attributes of a sort of moving average-based, 200-day moving average-based strategy. And at least from the long side, going long and index when it's above its 200-day moving average and selling it and going into cash or short-term treasury securities when it's below its 200-day moving average or in a downtrend, that's an effective strategy when it's applied to an index. But when it's applied to individual securities, the, the volatility is greater. You get more false signals. And so 
it would be a sort of different proposition. If I wanted to, there's, that's a defensible move. And we have, you know, friends, uh, contributors seeking alpha who have a sort of similar view of, okay, this long, this high, low volatility environment has been going on for a really long time. There are some companies whose fundamentals seem really poor. I want to get long volatility because I think that eventually it will spike and the kind of low volatility environment we've had is unsustainable. I'm also bearish on the tech sector in general. So I'll go find a specific company and I'll short it. I think the reason I haven't done that is because the primary rationale for this trade is that after such a long period of a very smooth upward bull run for tech stocks, if the index enters a downtrend, then the downtrend will be, and this is just my personal view, will be pronounced. And so if I'm going to have a moving average strategy and primarily focus on technical analysis, I want to apply that to an index rather than an individual company. You could back into a similar rationale using an individual company. But again, I think one of the weaknesses of that approach is that the company-specific risk and the volatility of individual securities is much higher. And therefore, you may, if you're applying a 200-day moving average philosophy, you may just get a false signal and go short, and then the stock will spike and you'll be out of the trade at a loss. It would be a different question to do a full fundamental analysis of the company and then enter a sort of short position based on what you think is a sort of company-specific bearish view. So there's this interplay, right, between having a view of an index or a sector versus having a company-specific. My, my view on this is that I'm going to use a strategy here that's primarily price-focused, that's basically technical analysis based on my belief in momentum in stocks, especially at the index level, that's sort of a different, that lends itself to more of an index vehicle than a different approach, which would be a sort of fundamental analysis of a company that I believe is flawed that matches my overall theme of bearishness on a sector. Okay, that makes sense. So you, you've got your, your fundamentally frustrated, skeptical of the ongoing smooth ascent of the tech sectors as a representative of the market as a whole. You are also interested in this momentum-oriented strategy, which uses the 200 daily moving average as a key indicator of potential price behavior in the future. And so the way I understand it is you've decided that if and when the time is right, you'll express this with PSQ as a short QQQ index or ETF. And you do that in October and you do this relatively late in October because it takes time for the stock market to sell off. We remember that the stock market sell off started more or less right on October 1st. And so 
take us through it. Take us through just because it's we're talking your book and it's a different strategy than we usually get into. Where did you, when do you open it? What do you, how are you thinking about managing the position and within the constraints of the three month rule and just sort of what happens from there? I've been watching the QQQ for two years or so, sort of eager to try and short the index one way or another, just based on the sort of over-exuberant investor sentiment I sort of associated with the recent rally in the stock market. We've seen some tech companies with some seemingly very poor fundamentals go public. We've seen a lot of enthusiasm for some tech companies that don't seem to justify the growth expectations. You said frustrated and skeptical. I think that I would combine those two together and say annoyed was sort of my reaction to the rally. So I'd been looking at this for a really long time. And the the index was just sort of refusing. It was in this really, really great uptrend and was not, not even really coming close to flirting. It would be 3 4% above the 200-day moving average and stay that way and was kind of going in lockstep with the 200-day moving average on this very, very smooth upward trajectory. You know, you hear short sellers and you hear people who trade momentum and they just stay out of the way of trends that they don't believe in. And that's kind of what I was doing up until October. My overall portfolio is very index heavy. You know, my obviously I have a 401k. I also have some other accounts. I do very little stock picking and very little directional trading one way or the other. So for the most part, I was going along with the ride. Then in October, there started to be some signs of a decline in the QQQ. And then again, people will have sort of different numbers for this, but my reading was that around mid-October, the stock crossed its 200-day moving average, which would give a momentum sell signal. And I got excited, but I didn't immediately buy because some of my friends who run similar strategies have shown me that there's a great frequency of false signals in these index momentum strategies, meaning that a sell signal will show itself, an index will go below its 200-day moving average, but then it will immediately snap back and just re-enter the downtrend. So you will go, my strategy then would go short right into a snapback into the overall uptrend, and I would have just lost money that way. So what a lot of people do is they do a month-end 200-day moving average strategy where they wait until a specific time in the calendar year, and then they apply it based on that. It just reduces the number of trades you do, which therefore reduces the number of false signals. So I waited. It got under and I got really excited. And I just, but I was like, I'm going to wait and see if this is a false signal. And then if it's kind of, I, I'm going to sound like a weird technical analysis, but if I get confirmation of it, if it rallies back up and then re-enters, or there's some sort of additional signal that this is sort of more of a downtrend, then I'll get on board. Let me interrupt as the skeptical fundamental voice. 
you talk about false signals and it could be a snapback and confirmation. And then even the sort of month end disciplinary tool and the idea of restricting your trades still is somewhat arbitrary, it seems to me, and still not necessarily controlling for just the noise that might be inherent in this strategy. And I guess what I'm curious about is we talk about confirmation and, you know, we know we can skip to the end to say that we know, at least with respect to the immediate signal from October to December was very, your signal was born out, right? It was a very good trade for that period. I think about this, for example, with all the torturous discussions of whether we're in a bull market or a bear market and we cross into a bear market for maybe 24 hours or maybe longer because it was over Christmas or whatever. But people are, some people, some bulls are relieved that the bear market has happened. Let's stop talking about how long the bull market is and let's start buying stocks again. And some bears are triumphal, but now, you know, if you, you know, it's just like whatever time frame you're looking at. And so I guess, how do you, what does all this mean to you? I, I get the strategy. <laughs> I get the sort of on the surface trend following technical analysis, everything else. But what, what are you actually doing? Is it really just as simple as you're Great. following the signals and say yes or no? Or how are you thinking about that? Great question. And I think, you know, I'm going to have to fess up and say that there are like a lot of flaws with this particular trade. And I could give a systematic rationale, but I think it's going to be pretty flawed for a lot of reasons. What am I doing? So let's back up. When you apply a trend following strategy to the S&P 500, which is not the QQQ, it's a different index. Basically, anything with a high sharp ratio, which is a high expected return versus its volatility, is a security that has that enters into a sort of long-term uptrends, periodic downtrends. But because the S&P 500 has these great positive returns versus the volatility that you're subject to, the number of false signals of downtrends is lower than for some other more volatile securities like individual stocks. That's the mix you need to have a successful trend following strategy. So that's one thing. I actually didn't do the back test or the work on the QQQ before entering this trade. And I was trying to do it right before this podcast to see what the results were. I also looked on some online back tests results and they weren't as favorable. And I think that's probably because the NASDAQ is much more volatile than the S&P 500. And especially if you look at things like the collapse of the tech bubble in the early 2000s, those were some really sharp declines. And there were also huge snapback rallies there. So from a systematic perspective, I'm not even sure that I could justify if we did all the homework and went back that a trend 200 day trend following strategy in the QQQs even works over the long term. 
But I do believe that indexes do display exposure to this momentum factor that if it's been going down for a while, it'll tend to go down. And if it's been going up for a while, it'll tend to go up. So the long-term validity of this strategy, I think, is at least somewhat in question when applied to the NASDAQ. But here's the, here's the counter to that. The stocks in the index have been going up for a really long time. I think that there's some air kind of underneath them from a fundamental perspective. And so if sentiment does shift in the index, and you know, like Fang has been a leader of this rally, the general idea here is that, I don't know, I'm in a dangerous spot. I don't know whether systematically this works. And I don't, so... And I'm not going to do this over the long term. I'm not going to take a bunch of wax at this or like implement a systematic strategy over the long term. So my my chance for this to sort of bear out over the long term is not high. But here is here's the advantage. The advantage is that I have a predetermined exposure and I have a predetermined exit point. So if the QQQs cross back over into an uptrend with respect to the 200 day moving average i'm going to i'm going to exit my psq position regardless of whether i'm above water or underwater on it so i just have a discipline there which is comforting to me another thing i should mention just on this whole thing of like why am i doing this i actually a friend of mine who does a lot of quantitative investing i told him that i had bought the psq in October and he wrote back and he with like kind of an email chuckle and said, shorting using this 200 day moving average momentum strategy is actually a negative expected value trade. That is on average, this does not work. But he said, you might be correct in terms of this might be one of the times that it does work. So all of that is kind of combining in my head. I think we can see from the outset that I have a kind of emotional reaction to this rally. That's probably what's fueling a lot of it, if I'm being honest with you. Some of the systematic overlay is more just to sort of give myself, pre-commit myself to certain decisions that will happen in the future so that I don't make even worse mistakes later by you know, this goes against me and then I'm just, we re-enter an uptrend and I just rationalize it somehow. This way, I, I have a sort of protection against my downside. So I, so I like that. I like, look, ultimately, you want positive expected values and ultimately you want to grow your account over the long term, et cetera. But you've defined this earlier as an experiment and the idea of having a defined limit to what how badly this could go is useful especially when you talk about i don't know if this is what your friend was alluding to but you look at psq over the long haul and the last 10 years and this etf continues to go down and down and down down and to the right which matches the bull market that we're having as an inverse but it's not it's not really a position you can hold for the long term unless you're doing it as part of a hedging strategy for your portfolio, right? Like you can't you can't say I'm really bullish on the you know the QQQ going down forever. That's not really a 
buy and hold position of any sort, right? History is not would not be on my side with that. Yeah. So yeah, I think this has to be defined as kind of a short-term trade. It's it makes it all the more impressive when you have people like Jim Chanos who express a bearish view on something like China and then they're will he'll seemingly wait for an entire cycle. And that's just really impressive given how forcefully the market can move against someone who's short. It 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 reflects how difficult short selling is on the company specific level as well as how difficult being short is in general. The the general trend in equity investing is that the investors on the long side get a kind of levered return on economic growth. And it's positive. Human history is the history of economic growth with sporadic downturns uh, that are, from a long-term perspective, relatively limited compared to the upside. So yeah, I, you you it would be a bad idea to have a long-term bearish view on the stock market. And, you know, there are some commentators that have that and they've just been fairly resoundingly punished, except over brief periods like the financial crisis in 2008. But it's much harder to get, and it's even people who were right about the crisis in 2008, a lot of them had the timing wrong and they got blown up. It was well understood that there were flaws in the mortgage market then, but a lot of people just mistimed. The people who got it right, there's an argument that they were just lucky. I think I have my eyes wide open to all this. You know, I we'll talk about sort of my thought process and the thoughts that came through my head as we did this. But I think you got to. I'm looking at this as an experiment. I'd, there's a lot of evidence that this trade actually shouldn't work out on average. And I have to sort of believe that this time it's different. I don't know whether I'm right about that. And I think that blending the fundamental with the momentum here, there's as many weaknesses as there are strengths to that strategy. So I'm looking, you, you shared a Google Doc with your sort of notes on this. And I'm looking at this there because there are two things that are I just think are worth looking at. One is the timing and sort of the intricacies of that. And so I'll start there. And then the second is just where, how this fits into a portfolio strategy. And actually Jim Chanos is somebody I had in mind for that. But the, so, you know, we look back on the last three months or so We're we're over the three month mark now. So you're a free man. You're welcome to do whatever you want with this position, but it's been, it's been quite a three month period, right? We had, we had what I think does count as a mini bear market or as an actual bear market, even though it lasted for moments. We have the Fed going from we're staying the course and we've got a long way to the neutral rate to actually not so fast. We think that we might not even hike at all in 2019. The trade war was unlikely to be resolved to actually we're talking quite a bit to, you know, just recently we're still a long way away. Like, how do you, there's a lot, you know, I mean, how do you feel? These seem like an especially busy three months. How did you feel knowing that you were locked in and that you had this, like, what were your thoughts? 
Yeah. Well, so first of all, I think my brain pretty much changed as soon as I entered this trade. So let's just give the time on, on that real quick. So October 10th, somewhere around there, the QQQ goes below its 200 day moving average and I get excited. And then uh, it actually does bounce. And it turns out that that initial signal was a false signal, but then it quickly over the next, towards the end of the month, it crosses below the 200 day moving average again. And it kind of has a bit of a plunge that makes me think, okay, this now it has a lot further to go to the upside to cross back out. So that makes me feel better that we're really in a downtrend. And it was late October, October 26, when I bought PSQ at a cost basis of $32.96. Then immediately we got a ton of news flow towards the end of October. So our headlines on Seeking Alpha, the news, October 31st, futures rally to end turbulent month. So there's some acknowledgement in the news coverage that October was a bit rough. Then November 1st, futures start November on the right foot. Then November 1st, futures slip as Apple falls on disappointing guidance. So just from the psychological perspective, as soon as I had this trade on and because it's a price-driven trade, I have to look at the price every day with respect to the 200-day moving average, which makes me into this kind of cartoonish, price-focused person who is watching all these headlines. Suddenly, I'm looking for an explanation for the broad market moves based on short-term events. I'm doing everything that a sort of fundamental investor, someone like Warren Buffett, they all disavow this behavior. And there's a lot of academic research to suggest that short-term trading and short-term focus, all these things are detrimental to investor decision-making. I am now doing every single one of those things. I'm looking every day. I open my chart every day. I see where the cues are relative to the moving average. And as soon as something goes against me, I'm looking for what happened and is it like, do, do I believe that that's valid or not? And if the QQQ is rallying, then I'm like, that's BS. I don't believe that because, you know, I'm short. And so I think that that price action is not valid. But if it goes down, then I'm like, yeah, that's what the real action is. So from a general perspective, I think it turned me into a kind of a weird short-term trading monster and the kind of person that you don't think is very smart about financial markets. For what it's worth, listeners, in chatting with Mike over this period, sometimes they didn't recognize him. It just didn't <laughs> seem like the Mike Taylor that I have come to know and love and work with. Uh, it's just, man, he's hunting headlines. So it's true. It's true what he said. Yeah. I was like posting in our Slack chat room. I was showing Daniel the, the QQQ chart with the moving average, and I don't think he could have been any less interested. But so, okay. <laughs> there were so many lines. There were just lines just everywhere. Of- <laughs> <laughs> but then I look like a genius, right? I look like a genius heading. Well, okay. So then November, I don't look like a genius. The trade goes against me. I'm still bound, remember, by the art restrictions, I can't exit the trade before 90 days. So in early November, 
the queues actually rally above the 200 day moving average, giving an exit signal to my short uh, decision. And amid all this, we're getting earnings results and we're also getting the trade talks. So one thing that I didn't think about when I went long PSQ was what might happen in the next several days after I enter the trade. And there were two really big things coming up that I didn't even really think about. One was earnings season was about to start. And the second was that these trade talks between the US and China, which had started to, I think it's different now, the focus is more like just completely squarely on that. But even then was a meaningful component of what people were looking for when they were trying to explain the stock price, stock market price action. Those two things were coming up and I just sort of naively walked into a bar with a bunch of ruffians and kind of was like, hey guys, like here I am. And then a, a brawl could break out any minute. So I don't know how I would do that next time, but I think I might look at the timing of my trade with respect to the calendar and see whether you know, there may be a lot of noise coming up that could affect my decision or make my life harder. Again, that's kind of ridiculous, right? Because it's pre predicting the market's reaction to various things and you're in some weird scenario analysis that doesn't even make any sense. The world is unpredictable and the market's response to the world is also unpredictable. So I don't know whether that would matter, but it certainly added to my stress levels to realize enter the short position on the NASDAQ and then immediately realize that there were these two major catalytic events coming right up. I don't know if there's a way around that, but I had a lot of buyer's remorse heading into it. And then for the rest of November, it was kind of like mid to late November, the NASDAQ then does drop. The Fed is starting to look hawkish the rate hike trajectory seems still on track. Uh, and the tech stocks actually closed in a bear market on November 20th. So I'm feeling pretty good at that point. I'm up maybe 3% on the trade, something like that. But then late November, there's a big rally. You know, the trade talks seem a little bit better. Trade war on pause is the headline on December 3rd. And that day was actually a meaningful day for me because the QQQ got very close to the 200-day moving average on that day. But also the 50-day moving average crossed over the 200-day moving average right around then in what's known as a death cross, which a lot of technical traders view as a bearish signal. I think the academic research and some of our contributors have said that it's not actually a good sell signal if you look at the statistics, but nevertheless, I'm taking whatever evidence I can. I narrowly escape another signal of an uptrend and then we head into December and December is where I start to look really smart because stocks get crushed in December. They fall all the way down to, you know, the Christmas Eve low. The Huawei exec gets captured or arrested in Canada. Global growth slowdown starts to become a major issue. 
Jerome Powell seems to not be affected by the stock sell-off and the Fed is continuing to hold strong. And I'm loving the Fed for continuing to want to raise rates. I I have two things I want to ask you about. First of all, death cross. I was glad that you could use that phrase. The death cross. (laughs) Is it... (laughs) I'm going to try to not be a snarky fundamental jerk, but what I find compelling about technical analysis is not much, but what I do find compelling is the idea that it's reflective of market behavior and human behavior has patterns. And so if we can codify it in some way, there is something out there that people are responding to. Ultimately, even the algorithm, the algorithmic trading, if anything is arguably exacerbating this and so there's this sort of attitude by investors and it plays out in the in the markets but i never really understand why these crosses golden cross death cross why do they mean anything except as a you know some lines like what what i I can get the concept of averages reflecting all this and all but what how do you understand the cross why does that why is that a big day? Why does that matter? It's just, I think it's just cool, kind of. You mentioned before that some of this it moving is a cool average. Phrase. So, people who are doing real momentum strategies and the sophisticated people, and I would include uh, primarily, there are probably quantitative people who do that. So, what they do is they take, they run more sophisticated back tests, they guess and check against history, and they also do machine learning processes to find sort of the ideal moving average, maybe even a moving average to target that's, you know, more sophisticated, like an exponential moving average, whatever. They also, they, they have algorithms that seek out the optimal sort of moving average strategy and then apply that. So the 200 day is just sort of basically reflective of the concept that stocks have some kind of momentum and that trends do exist in risky securities. So that's sort of the long and short of it. The It's really comes down to this just basic math of something's in a downtrend if it's below some average that it's been before and it's in an uptrend if it's below some other average or if it's above the average that it's been before the trailing average. For the death cross, I think it's just the 50-day is something that traders look at a lot. I guess that's a two-month average. Since people are looking at it, that's partly of some interest. It's also, it's smoother than the one-day returns, right? So I think that you might buy the argument that some arbitrarily defined, whether it's a one month or two month average, this goes back to the, you know, the, the end of month trading discipline, the death cross just imposes another layer of information that this sort of smooth two month returns are now crossing into a downtrend in addition to the one day returns. That is fairly arbitrary. I think it's like the name is really cool. And I was just looking for it as a kind of interesting confirmation, however spurious of the trade. And well, here's the other thing. So, you know, it's just, it's an N of one, but that was the local peak. 
in the NASDAQ was the death cross. It kind of all took place at the same time. Uh, a technical analyst would say something like it tested the 200-day moving average and then failed to break through. And then from there, December was a really sharp decline. And people who were buying that dip started to sort of get uneasy heading into late December. And I started to feel really good. I mean, I was up you know, almost 13% on the trade at the Christmas low and feeling really feeling myself like I managed to negative expected value trade. This shouldn't work, but I'm special and I made the right call here. And, you know, the strength of my knowledge of the tech sector and the sort of weak fundamentals of the whole thing are supporting me. The Fed is on my side. They're going to raise rates and uh, I'm going to look. This is the one. This is the real. There's a lot of air underneath the NASDAQ. And so I'm I'm in great shape. The death crash was just part of that. And so, look, it goes back to me becoming this emotional monster, I think, right? Where I just <laughs> suddenly am not really in the world of all I have is my position and my exit point. And then the rest is kind of just noise, but I'm looking... I'm looking at it for reassurance, I think. And that's the human side of me that all investors kind of have this. And it's true from the long side in individual stocks. And it's true even for people who run passive portfolios. They're kind of just like looking for reassurance that their position is reasonable. And so the death cross, I think, falls into that. And it's a spurious one, but it almost doesn't matter once you're in one of these trades, or at least I lack the sort of information filter that distinguishes good information from bad. And especially if I'm looking at the thing every day. So the other thing I was going to ask is how does it feel? How does it feel to become a fed hawk? Because you have to talk your book for three months. (laughs) I like to make fun of people who sort of look at the fed and blame everything on the fed and, I just think the Fed is so interesting because no matter what they do, someone just is completely spewing hate at them. I, they're stupid for raising rates because it's just the wrong thing to do, or they're stupid for holding steady, or they're stupid for lowering rates. And I think they just have the same, they're just doing their job and they're just doing their best. So in general, not with respect to this trade, but I kind of try to tune out the Fed a lot, but we have what happened December to January where Powell was on track to hold firm. He was on track to continue the sort of rate increase trajectory that had been previously outlined. The stock market was cooperating with me by going down in response to all this. And so I became a fan of the Fed. And then not to get too political, but President Trump tweeted out or had some comments about how the, you know, the Fed would be crazy to raise interest rates in this environment. And then we don't know, I don't know what the underlying decision process was, but they came out later and were more dovish. And it was, I mean, that's fine. I don't know what the proper interest rate setting schedule is. I I don't even really care that much other than that I have this position on. But it was frustrating to see that they were on track to sort of conform to my expectations and 
deliver me my trading results that I wanted. <laughs> and then they, they backed off from that. And now we're kind of, I'm a little underwater on the trade as of today. Yesterday was another test of the 200-day moving average, and it again failed. And so there's a little wiggle room. There's potential for me to realize some profit on the trade. But I think the most likely outcome from here is that I'm going to have to exit at a loss just because we're really close to the 200-day moving average right now. And the thing will just bounce into an exit and I'll probably lose a little money on it. But I'd be fine with that. It was a good learning experience. So that's where we're at. And there's still a chance that, that it goes down a lot and I make a little money and I look really, really smart. How would you, so you've said that your risk, you would close on the upside if it crossed the 200 moving day or, or, or the downside for you on the upside. If it, if, if we've just tested the 200 moving day and failed to break it and hit Stop resistance, and now we're, <laughs> I'm sorry. If they now, if it's now going downward, when do you decide to pull the plug or do you just hold it? Like, how do you, what's a confirmation that it's time to leave? Or are you just going to close as soon as you get back to even? Yeah, I think this is the problem. And I think this is where the minus expected value comes in. The reason momentum strategies are attractive from the long term on the long side is that you just go risk off when something enters a downtrend. And because the trend is in your favor over the long term, then all you're doing is kind of managing downside volatility. And that's it. This creates a better sharp ratio for your portfolio, and it makes you manage your psychology as a long-term long investor that you're not exposed to as many drawdowns. That doesn't mean that the inverse works. So, you know, often a downtrend, a index will exit a downtrend somewhat below where it entered the downtrend, but it doesn't exit a downtrend with respect to the moving average at the bottom. It can't. It has to rally first. So there's a strong chance that if I just adhere to the strategy here and exit only when the index crosses back above its 200-day moving average, that I'll be break-even or only slightly ahead of where I was before. So... That's a flaw that really only came to light to me after I entered the position. And to be honest with you, I don't have a very strongly defined plan to maximize the positive return on this trade. I don't know. Maybe I'll just wait until sentiment is super bearish and then just try and time the market again. I'm kind of in a spot where I don't really... I don't know. I think that's the part where we see the kind of negative expected value of trying to short on momentum. The upside's really limited, I think, and I don't really know how to capture it if we're just being honest. But so but then that's the, maybe that's the last point to hit is that and I'll bring back Jim Chanos who we talked brought up earlier. There was a really good article on his strategy I think an institutional investor or one of the hedge fund man- magazines or websites. And it talked about how his strategy is to go a triple leveraged S&P ETF, if I understood it correctly, long, and then to just short, run a total short book. 
And yeah. the impressive thing was that he actually generated alpha on just, or not alpha, alpha isn't the right word. He actually generated positive returns on the short book, which is a lot of alpha, I think, if I remember correctly. But then you're also capturing that economic growth with the leveraged yeah. exposure to the market. And I really thought that was kind of a, a neat portfolio construction. And I've been thinking about as an experiment, I have a buy order out on this small oil and gas company that I came across. And it's, you know, the stock's probably about 10% above where my order is. But what I'd like to do with that is to hope that it fills and then put on an equal sized position in a short oil ETF or something to just kind of mm -hmm. experiment with whether or not, you know, I could, that could totally blow up on me. But if it's a small enough position, it's worth learning from. And so I guess the, the experiment in and of itself is worthwhile, I think, to learn about your own psychology and how to manage this. But then I'm also curious, there's talk in the investing world about the psychic rewards of good short selling and of this sort of feeling you may have been bearish the whole bull market and you may have gotten the timing wrong at every step, but man, did it feel good in December when it, things looked like they were finally going to sell off. And that's really not something that you can bank on, but it does feel good. But it's also <laughs> the part about, you, you know, you mentioned your 401k or whatever other positions you have are probably long exposed. They're probably ultimately exposed Super, positively yeah. to a bull market. So yeah. in theory, even if you return a negative result for this, it provides, I don't know, does it provide you any security? Does it provide you any hedging that if if you weren't locked into the three months, then December would have been a lot less stressful because you know that you have a position that's gaining despite the fact that the rest of your holdings might be going down? Like, how do you, what's what's your yeah. take on that aspect? Yeah, I mean, that's the strength of the kind of momentum strategy overall I was alluding to is that, you know, especially for people like financial advisors or or clients or people who are in a sort of momentum strategies is that when the world is collapsing, many times your exposure to the collapse is a lot less and that's just easier psychologically to handle. Even if over the long run, you're not really going to have that different of a return profile. It keeps you from selling at the bottom if you kind of manage your downside in this way. You sell a little bit ahead of the bottom, you feel better. And therefore, that's the argument anyway. And I think that did play out a little bit. It felt good. And I felt good in December. I wasn't scared in December because I did have this light position on. I was modestly hedged against that downturn. And so the effect was maybe blunted versus what it might have been. Otherwise, although, you know, some of our colleagues were just happily buying the dip and so they were totally fine too. So this wouldn't, it's not required as a way of managing that. I also thought while we were talking just quickly about a way to exit the trade at profit, like when things are crashing to not use the 200 day. And that's something that I use in other strategy is I go long country ETFs when their CAPE is really low, like below 10. So something you could look at is like, go short whenever something goes below the 200 day moving average. And then if it's Cape goes, gets to an attractive level, then cover and go long. Or if the Cape gets below 15, then maybe 
cover, something like that. So I'll think a little bit more about it, but it occurred to me as we were talking and you mentioned your sort of limit by order that you could do a similar thing as a way of forming an exit strategy. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I think it's just interesting because there are whatever tones of irony I used earlier, there are many different ways to slice the market pie and to figure out how to invest, trade, or whatever successfully. And I just think what's interesting about the market is that, for example, let's let's ignore the Seeking Alpha policy. If you had closed your position on Christmas Eve, that would have been a very successful call. And, you know, the way I was managing my portfolio wasn't necessarily was still just long stocks and a bunch of different things. And, you know, I met, managed to move some things around and made a couple small buys in December, whatever, but I had a terrible December and a happy January. And so that worked for me. And so it, not that we were on the opposite sides of the trade here, but like there's, there's different ways to different strategies. And what I think is what I like about your approach is that you have some rules around it that suit you that you're open-minded to the learning here and that you're looking for things that will work for you. And I think anybody who has stuck with us this long will know, no surprise that (laughs) this would not work for me, but I like that it worked. It seems like it's working for you, whether or not it ends up being a profitable trade in the pure portfolio strategy. So kudos, Mike, kudos. I think I'm not going to do it again. I think that's what I learned here. I think I learned that this doesn't really work, but I'm still in it. So I don't know. I guess I could just exit today and not worry about it anymore. A fun portfolio position that I'll probably never take again by Mike Taylor. I like it. That's exactly a supposedly fun one. (laughs) There we go. Sorry. Thank you. Thanks for coming. All right. I think we should end there. Yeah, let's leave it there. Thanks for listening to this week's Behind the Idea. We hope you enjoyed it, even if it was a little thorny. We're speaking with a few investors and analysts this week about recent topics, so stay tuned for a few interview episodes over the week to come. Leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to us there or on Spotify, and email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com with any feedback you might have. Thanks so much. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. See you next week on Behind the Idea.